You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we bow our hearts before your word, and if you do not visit us through it, then we have wasted our time and spent it in vain. And so we do ask that as we look at your word, that your spirit would be here to convict us and exhort us and encourage us. We pray that you would use our time here to your glory and that you give us the understanding that we need. We call out to you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I have to live constantly my life under the realization that I am no Apostle Paul. And uh, I, have not, uh, I have not accomplished as much in the last 11 years of pastoral ministry as the Apostle Paul did in any one given year of his ministry. And sometimes I get a little intimidated by Paul. I don't know if you share my uh, sort of anxiety over that, but I look at what the Apostle Paul did and the type of person that he was, and he's a bit daunting, a bit intimidating. And Paul is not the only one. There are unique men throughout church history whose biographies and autobiographies I've read uh, that I desire to learn more about and be more like. And I've shared some of this stuff with you in years past, but I want to share at least a, a cursory amount of details with you concerning three sort of spiritual, intellectual, pastoral giants over the course of church history. And I've just pulled out three whose information was readily at my fingertips. John Calvin, Martin Luther, and Charles Spurgeon, all of whom intimidate me greatly, just like the Apostle Paul. Let me share with you some of these things, because I read stuff like this, and one of the reasons that I read biographies of great Christian men from years gone by is because I kind of like to be encouraged by some of the things that I read and uh, reproved a little bit. Let's start with John Calvin, a contemporary of John Calvin who pastored a church in Geneva, said Calvin, quote, Calvin for his part did not spare himself at all, working far beyond what his power and regard for his health would stand. He preached commonly every day for one week in two, and twice on every Sunday for a total of about ten times every two weeks. Every week he lectured three times in theology. He never failed in visiting the sick, in private warning and counsel, and the rest of the numberless matters arising out of the ordinary exercise, excuse me while I take a breath, of his ministry. But besides these ordinary tasks, he had one great care for believers in France, both in teaching them and exhorting and counseling them and consoling them by letters when they were being persecuted and also in interceding for them. Yet all that did not prevent him from going on working at his special study and composing many splendid and very useful books. Wolfgang Musculus referred to John Calvin as a bow always strung. He was one of these sort of tightly wired, um, anxious, type A personality individuals. In one way, he seemed to take heed to his health. And Colladin says, quote, he was for many years with a single meal a day and never took anything between meals. Why? Well, his reasons were that the weakness of his stomach and his migraines could only be controlled, he had found, by experiment and by continual abstinence from food. But on the other hand, he was apparently careless of his health and worked night and day with scarcely a break. And you can hear a bit of his drivenness in a letter that he wrote to Falaise in 1546 in which Calvin said this, quote, Apart from the sermons and the lectures, there is a month gone by in which I have scarcely done anything. In such wise, I am almost ashamed to live a useless month. And that was a month where he preached only 20 times and lectured 12 times. 
He was ashamed that he had been so unproductive in his ministry. Continuous ill health, um, Calvin wrote. He was plagued by his continuous ill health, and he wrote to his physician in 1564, 50 years old, 53 years old, and he described his colic, spitting of blood, and gout, and the quote-unquote excruciating sufferings of his hemorrhoids. But worst of all seemed to be the kidney stones that had to be passed unrelieved by any sedative. Now, he accomplished all of this while he was undergoing this type of suffering. Calvin wrote, quote, They, that is speaking of the kidney stones, they gave me exquisite pain. At length, not without the most painful strainings, I ejected a calculus which in some degree mitigated my sufferings, but such was its size that it lacerated the urinary canal and a copious discharge of blood followed. This hemorrhage could only be arrested by an injection of milk through a syringe. And I say that, I'm not trying to gross you out. I'm just trying to give you a, a sense of what others have gone through. By the way, are you feeling sorry for yourself yet? Martin Luther, in the church in Wittenberg, in Luther's day, there were no programs. They didn't have children's ministry in Sunday school. There was worship and preaching. Sundays, 5 a.m., worship with a sermon on an epistle. 10 a.m., with a sermon on the gospel, an afternoon message on the Old Testament or catechism. Monday and Tuesdays, Luther preached sermons on the catechism. Wednesdays on Matthew. Thursdays and Fridays on the apostolic letters. And Saturdays on the book of John. Walter von Lowenwick said in his biography of Luther, quote, Luther was one of the greatest preachers in the history of Christendom. Between 1510 and 1546, Luther preached approximately 3,000 sermons. Frequently, he preached several times a week, often two or more times a day. For example, to give you an example of Luther's output, just his productivity as a pastor, in 1522, he preached 117 sermons in Wittenberg and 137 sermons the next year. In 1528, he preached almost 200 times. From 1529, we have 121 sermons, and so the average in those four years was one sermon every two and a half days. Besides his active personal involvement in church conferences and church committees and in running the church and the school, there was the unbelievable stream of publications that were all related to the exposition and study of Scripture. In 1520, Luther wrote 133 works, not words, works, 133 works. In 1522, he wrote 130. In 1523, he wrote 183, that's one every other day, and he wrote just as many in 1524 while he was preaching, sometimes on an average of once every two and a half days. Now physically, Luther suffered from excruciating kidney stones and headaches with buzzing in his ears and ear infections and incapacitating constipation. Luther wrote at one point, quote, I nearly gave up the ghost, am now bathed in blood, can find no peace, and what took four days to heal immediately tears open again. I only got one more, and then I promise I will stop. <laughs> one of my personal heroes of the faith, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon once said this of his own ministry. No one living knows the toil and the care I have to bear. I have to look after the or orphanage, have charge of a church with 4,000 members. Sometimes there are marriages and burials to be undertaken. There is a weekly sermon to be revised, the sword and the trowel to be edited, and besides all that, a weekly average of five hundred letters to be answered. Spurgeon did that. Five hundred letters a week he answered. Now if you give me an email, you'd be lucky if you get an answer within two weeks because i got three or four of those to answer maybe in a week's time. This, however, this back to Spurgeon, 
This, however, is only half my duty, for there are innumerable churches established by friends with the affairs of which I am closely connected, to say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly being referred to me. At his 50th birthday party, a list of 66 organizations was read that he, that is Spurgeon, had founded or conducted. Lord Shaftesbury was there and he said, quote, this list of associations instituted by his genius and superintended by his care were more than enough to occupy the hearts and minds of 50 ordinary men. Spurgeon typically read six substantial books a week and he could remember everything he read and where to find it. He produced more than 140 books of his own, like The Treasury of David, which was 20 years in the making, a book called Morning and Evening, a book titled Commenting on Commentaries, and John Plowman's talk in a book titled Our Own Hymn Book. He often worked 18 hours a day, and one time David Livingston asked him, how do you accomplish the work of two ordinary men? To which Spurgeon replied, you forget, Sir Livingston, that there are two of us, referring to himself and the Lord Jesus. And most people don't know that Spurgeon did all of that and accomplished all of that while he suffered from excruciating gout and headaches. And Spurgeon, by his own admission, would sometimes hobble up into the pulpit and he would preach his 40-minute sermon and he would hobble back down, go to bed, and spend the rest of the week in bed, incapacitated by his gout, unable to walk. Now, when I read all of that stuff, I sometimes I read that for a couple of different reasons. First of all, because it helps me to realize how much of a wimp I am. And any time I begin to complain or carp or think, oh, Jim is so busy. Oh, Jim has so much to do. Oh, woe is me. I teach Sunday school and one sermon a week. I just look back to the example of other men who have gone before and I kind of try and keep my mouth shut and realize, you know what? I really haven't suffered and I really am not as busy as I could be or maybe even as I should be. I have a confession to make. As your pastor, I am not as productive as Calvin Luther or Spurgeon. I don't know if you noticed that or not. It might come as a shock to some of you, but I have not in 10 years of ministry accomplished what Martin Luther accomplished in any one given year of his ministry, and I have not had to deal with the physical complications and the pains and the suffering that he had to endure. Now, why do I share that with you? Because Paul strikes me as one of those type of individuals. When I read Paul's writings or when I read about the Apostle Paul, I am immediately struck with how far short I fall of following that example. And when we read of men like Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon, and you could add to that Zwingli and Edwards and Whitfield and D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday and a list of thousands of others who have gone before us, who have accomplished so much and their examples are so extraordinary, we can fall into the trap of going to one of two extremes. We can look at such men and say to ourselves, Oh, I'll never be like that, so I'm not even going to try. And I know that they're unique people, they're weirdos, or there's something extraordinary about them. God has gifted them, I'll never be like that, so I'm just going to ignore it and go on with my life. Or we can look at such, such examples and say, that's the norm, and I should be more like that, and then we could guilt ourselves to death by not being more like that. Now, I tend toward this side. I tend to be guilted by the examples of such men. And I think that there is a middle road approach where we look at the examples of such men and we say to ourselves, no, I'll never be like that. No, I'm not gifted like that. No, I don't have those type of mental, spiritual, or physical abilities. But I can be inspired by their example and I can continue to press on toward that type of example. That's sort of the middle of the road approach. That's why I read Christian biographies. 
That's why I read to you the examples of those three men. I think it's informative for us to look at Paul and men like him and say, I'm probably not as gifted as Paul. I'm probably not as physically or mentally able as the Apostle Paul. But I can be inspired by his example and press on. And that, friends, is exactly the attitude that the Apostle Paul encourages us to have in Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, which we're going to be looking at today. Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Now, since it's been two weeks, because I wasn't here last Sunday, I do want to just briefly recap for you what we looked at the three previous Sundays. We were looking at that athletic metaphor that the Apostle Paul gives of him running a race. And we saw the mindset of the runner, where the Apostle Paul says, I do not regard myself as having obtained my standard or my perfection yet, but I press on. I'm, I'm not. It's that humble state of mind where you realize there's a goal for me to reach, and I'm not going to reach it this side of eternity. I'm not going to reach it in this life, but I ought to be striving toward that mark. Second, we looked at the manner in which we run, forgetting the things which have come behind us, all of the path that we have have laid out so far in our Christian life. We don't look back at our victories and our accomplishments and the track that we've run and pause and evaluate things, but instead we reach forward toward the goal. What is the goal? We looked also at the mark toward which we run. And that is that calling of God upon our lives toward Christ's likeness. What is it that Christ has laid hold of me for? That is what I am to seek to lay hold of. If Christ has laid hold of me to make me eventually completely sanctified and completely holy and completely righteous, then I ought to pursue that sanctification, that holiness, and that righteousness. That is the upward call, the call that comes from God that brings us to heaven. That is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus that He issues to us. He says to us, be perfect, come up, I'm calling you, this is what I have for you, and that's what we reach for. Knowing that we're not going to get it this side of, of heaven, but we strive for it anyway. Well, today in verses 15 and 16, we're going to be looking at three marks of Christian maturity. I want you to read the verses with me again. Verse 15 and 16. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Now, the Apostle Paul is a gifted pastor. He's an experienced pastor. He's pastored a few different churches. And the Apostle Paul knows that as he tells people, look, here is my Christ-centered ambition. Here is what I live my life for. Here is the focus, the drive, the, the, the driving force of my life. He understands that there are people in the congregation of Philippi and his readers, including some who are sitting here today, who are not going to share completely Paul's passion and Paul's Christ-centered focus. Friends, that is the reality of the people that are sitting around you. Some of you here this morning, and you know who you are, I don't, I can't, nobody else around you can. Some of you here this morning do not share the Apostle Paul's Christ-centered ambition. Your life is focused on other things. Your life is focused on gaining this or acquiring that or doing this or experiencing that or pursuing whatever it is. You don't have a Christ-centered ambition. You cannot honestly say, as the Apostle Paul did in verses 12 through 14, that this is the one thing that he did. Your life is so disjointed, it's such a train wreck, that you're pursuing a hundred different things and not doing any of them well. And none of them include pursuing Christ. So as we read this, Paul understands in Philippi, there would be people in Philippi who would not share that type of mindset. They weren't going to be where the Apostle Paul was spiritually. So what the Apostle Paul does is he lays out for them three marks of Christian maturity, and he encourages them in the way that he gives this, really, to pursue Christian maturity. And he shows a lot of grace in saying to the Philippians, look, I understand you may not be here, you may not have this mindset, but this is a mature mindset. 
So let's look at those three marks. The first of them is a Christ-centered ambition. And we find that in verse 15. Paul says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Notice that he says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect. Now the way the Apostle Paul says that, it comes out in the English, and it's stated this way in the Greek as well. The way the Apostle Paul says that, he invites a little bit of reflection on yourself. And you got to ask yourself, he doesn't name those who are perfect. He doesn't assume that everybody in the congregation is perfect in this sense, or that everybody in the congregation is not perfect. But he simply throws it out. He includes himself in this group, and he says, let as many of us as are perfect, and the word is mature, we're going to look at that in a second, let as many of us as are perfect have this attitude. And so it sort of invites you and I to say, hmm, would I find myself in that camp? Would you? You look at your own life, and you evaluate it, and you look at where you're at, and where you've been, and where you're going, and what your ambitions are, and if you were reading this in the city of Philippi, would you say, the Apostle Paul, I think, has me in mind. I'm mature. I have this Christ-centered ambition. And that's what he's describing. He's describing a mindset. Now verse 12, when you read verse 12 and then you read verse 15, you're tempted to say, hold on, a sense of contradiction here. In verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, I have not yet been made or become perfect. And he uses the same, the same root word that he uses down in verse 15 where he says, as many of us as are, what? Perfect. Well, hold on, Paul. In verse 12, you're saying you haven't become perfect. In verse 15, you're saying as many of us as are perfect. How do you explain that? Is that a contradiction? What's the Apostle Paul doing? Well, that's usually been explained in one of two ways. Let me give them to you. The first one, which I think there might be some legitimacy to this and possibility to this, but it's not totally convincing to me. The first way of explaining it is to say the Apostle Paul has in mind there the the false teachers he mentions in verse 2 because the false teachers, the false circumcision, the evil dogs, those who were plaguing with these false doctrines would have said, when you're circumcised and when you become a Jewish Christian, then you're complete, then you're perfect. And so some would say the Apostle Paul is sort of using one of their catchphrases, the teleoi. He's using one of their catchwords and he's describing it in sort of a, in a play on words. He's aiming a, a, a slam at them and saying, you think you're perfect? If you think you're perfect, then you ought to have the mindset that says, I'm not perfect. Kind of a play on words, a little tongue-in-cheek sarcasm addressed towards the false teachers. That's possible, but I think more than likely what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's using two different forms of the same word with two very slightly different meanings. In verse 12, teleomai, the word to become perfect or to be made perfect, refers to a spiritual and moral perfection that is the result of being resurrected with Christ at the end of our life. And Paul says, I haven't obtained to that. But teleos in the Greek can also mean mature or complete or intact or whole. And it can also be referred, used to refer to something that is perfect. God is called perfect. The law is called perfect. Every gift of the Father is perfect, the Scripture says. But the word is also used to describe those that are intact, whole, complete, mature, adult, grown up. And I think that that's the way the Apostle Paul is using it in verse 15. He's saying, I have not achieved moral and spiritual perfection where I have no progress that is yet to be made, but as many of us have achieved maturity This is the mature mindset that you ought to have. So he's giving a mark of Christian maturity, and actually mature is how the NIV translates it. you notice that if you have an NIV in your lap. It actually uses the word mature. The Apostle Paul is saying, for those of us who are mature, you have this mindset. And do you understand the difference between maturity and perfection? Is it possible to be mature without being perfect? Is that possible? 
It certainly is possible. The same way that the Apostle Paul uses this concept in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, where he says that the gifts are given to the church for the maturing up of the body so that we may all come to a complete measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we might be mature. And then he goes on to describe what a mature believer looks like. A mature believer speaks the truth in love. A mature believer guards his mouth. A mature believer walks in truth. A mature believer is not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. A mature believer is a discerning believer. Many of you here are more mature than I am. Some of you here are not as mature as I am. I have no idea who you are because all of us are at different levels in our spiritual growth. Some of you mature quickly. Some of you mature slowly. Some of you are far more mature than I'll ever be in your spiritual walk and your walk with Christ. Some of you are not as mature. You're just beginning. But we can all reach a point where we are discerning, where we speak the truth in love, where we're not tossed back and forth by every spurious and doubtful doctrine of Scripture, where we reach a point where we walk with Christ in a consistent life. That's maturity. But you can reach that point without being perfect. You don't have to be morally and spiritually perfect and sinless before you can be mature in your faith. And what we're after is maturity. What's the mark of maturity? Paul says, let as many of us as are mature have this mindset. What mindset? The mindset described in verses 12, 13, and 14. The mindset that says, I have not arrived, I have not achieved it, and so I press on. And I press on with a singleness of focus, intent on the goal to which Christ has called me. That is a mature mindset. Now, having read verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul says, if you share that mindset, if that is your mindset, then that is a mark of maturity. That is what it means to be mature. So each of us has to evaluate ourselves in light of that measure and say, am I mature in my faith? Do I have a Christ-centered ambition? Am I able to say, at least generally speaking, that that is the direction and drive of my life in verses 12 to 14? That's mature Christianity. Now, if you say to yourself, you know what, I'm not perfect and I really don't care. That's not mature Christianity. If you say, I'm really not perfect and I'm going to sin anyway, so I just keep going on and I just do it, and I really am not interested in pursuing those things or heading in that direction, that is not a mature faith. A mature faith says, I'm not perfect, and day after day I'm going to pursue that, and I want to change, and I want to be better, and by the grace of God I'm going to be sanctified, and I'm going to progress in holiness till the day He calls me home. That's a mature mindset. That's the first mark. The second mark is a growth in grace. A growth in grace. Look what the Apostle Paul says at the end of verse 15. Let as many of us as are perfect have this attitude, and this I think is so gracious, look at this. If in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. If in anything you have a different attitude. Now there are some in Philippi who would not have shared Paul's ambition. There are some in Philippi who didn't have a fully Christ-centered perspective or ambition. And the Apostle Paul, in a very gracious way, says, look, if you don't share this attitude, if you don't share this mindset, then the Lord, the Lord will reveal that even to you. The word reveal means to, to make a revelation of something. It was used in the New Testament to speak of God revealing Himself, God revealing His Word, God revealing His will. It's used in the New Testament to speak of Christ's revelation of Himself at the second coming. It, word, it means to disclose something, to unfold something, to bring something to light, to reveal it. And Paul is using it here in the same sense that he does in Ephesians chapter 1 
where he prays to the, the, for the Ephesians that God would give them a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And then Paul goes on to unfold what that means in Ephesians 1. It means that you would understand more and more of God's glorious purposes for your life and that you might grow more and more in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the type of revelation. I'm not talking about dreams and visions or anything like that. But that God, if your mind is not the way it should be, if you don't share this mindset, if you're not growing in maturity, here's the encouraging note. God Himself will reveal that to you and He will prompt you on towards spiritual growth. Now for some of you, that has happened as a result of going through the book of Philippians. For some of you, that happens every single Sunday, and it should, as you are prompted more and more to conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what's being spoken of. God will, throughout the course of your life, tweak and change and mold and shape you. Now there is in those words a note of warning. And I want you to hear it. If you don't think this way, God's going to show you. He's going to reveal that to you. Now, it might be through discipline. If you persist in unbelief, and if you persist in not having that mindset, God has a way sometimes of taking sort of goads and, and making you feel the heat and feel the pain of not maturing in your Christian faith. So there is an element of warning there. There's also an element of encouragement. If you don't share my mindset on this, Paul says, then he's able to just leave it and say, God's going to show you that himself. He will reveal that to you. He who began the good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And do you notice the note of grace in the Apostle Paul's voice? Did the Apostle Paul say, if you don't share my mindset, man, you need to get into line, and I can't wait to get to Philippi. I'm going to deal with some of you there, and when I leave, you'll be all thinking the same way I think. Did Paul say that? Look at the grace. You don't see it the same way I do? I leave that with the Lord. He's going to deal with you as He needs to deal with you. He will complete it, and that's God's work, not my work. Some of you don't agree with me on every issue or every philosophical issue, every theological issue, every practical issue. I really don't care. I'm not up here to change your mind. I'm up here to preach the Word. I'm not up here to make clones of Jim Osmond. I really don't care to have an argument with you about this little thing or that little thing. I'm not interested in any of that. Why? Because I have tried over the course of my life, and I've learned this the hard way, to take sort of this gracious approach, and all of the elders, we try to do this, a gracious approach that just says, this is where we're at. We recognize that we're all at different levels of maturity, and we show a little grace. There are people sitting next to you who just rub you raw. You know that. There's people sitting behind you, in front of you, that just grate on you. And there's things about me that I know just drive you nuts. Little idiosyncrasies that I do while I'm up here. The fact that I preach too long. All these different things that I do. I know that there's stuff like that that just grates on you. But you know what? God's working on me. God's working on you. And things will go a lot smoother with all of us if we just said, you know what? We may not all agree on these little things, but as long as we're walking together toward this goal and this is what we're pursuing, there's a lot of this stuff that we can just spread over and just cover it up and just deal with it and just give us some time and just be patient. Because 10 years from now, I'm going to do something you say, oh, I remember you used to do that 10 years ago and that drove me nuts. But now, Osman, you do this thing that you never did 10 years ago and it drives me, just be patient with me until I die. If we're all patient with each other and we just have that same attitude, you don't agree with me, you don't have the same mindset, you're not where I'm at in your level of maturity, then have that attitude toward your fellow brother or sister in Christ. They're not where I'm at in this, so I'm going to show them some grace, I'm going to extend that to them, and I'm going to be patient with them. I'm not talking about gross, 
moral failings, church discipline issues, sin issues, things like that. Talking about all the things where we just rub each other the wrong way. Very gracious of Paul to say that. You don't share my mindset? God will reveal that to you. Kind of interesting to me that the Apostle Paul assumed that by God revealing that to them that they would eventually come around to his way of thinking. (laughs) Some of you have no problem with that attitude. Yeah, God will show you someday I'm right. That's not quite what the Apostle Paul meant. He's just simply in a note of grace saying, look, you're going to grow in grace. We're all going to grow in grace. You may not be where I'm at in my level of maturity. You may not be where I'm at in my Christ-centered focus and my ambition. We all mature at a different pace. We're all at different stages. And God's bringing us all further along, growing in grace. Now, just because God is responsible for growing us in grace does not exempt us from the responsibility to pursue our growth in grace, which is where verse 16 comes in. We've looked at two of the marks of maturity. That is the Christ-centered ambition. Second, the continual growth in grace. And third, verse 16, is consistent living. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Paul says, look, here's my ambition. You want to be mature? This is the mindset that you ought to have. If you're not quite there, then God will reveal that even to you. But in the process of doing that, and in the meantime, all of us ought to live up to the same standard to which we have attained. In other words, all of us have reached a level in our Christian life and a level in our Christian growth and maturity, and we ought to live in consistency to that level that God has brought us to. So as God brings us from one level of maturity to another, as we seek and pursue holiness, our lives always ought to be characterized by that level of maturity that we have been brought to and that amount of light that we have received. The word to live up to or to live in line with was a military term, and it was used of standing in a row. And if you've been in the military, then you know what it means to stand in a row. You stand in columns and in rows. And that's how the word was used, stoikos. And when you marched in line with something, it meant, and it was used figuratively, to describe agreeing with something and being in line with something and lining up with something. And the apostle in verse 16 describes all of us marching together and living in a row, agreeing to pursue something together. As God brings us, from one level of maturity to another, we live together, we have the same mind together, we pursue all of the essentials together, we grow in grace together, and we march in lockstep toward this goal, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what it means to have a consistent life. Has God brought you to this point in your Christian life? Then you need to live, you need to live there. And you don't regress. And if God has given you X amount of light, you need to live up to that amount of light. And if God has brought you to a certain way of thinking by His grace and matured you to a certain point, friends, listen, you have a responsibility to live there. And when you sin against light and you sin against your conscience and you sin against what you know to be true and you purposefully regress, then you're doing the opposite of what Paul's saying in verse 16. You're sinning. If God has brought you to this point, you live at that standard to which you have attained. Don't go backwards. And in the meantime, in the meantime, all of us progress together, living by the standard to which we have attained. Everybody at his own level of maturity. I'm not going to look down on you if you don't see something the same way I do. God will reveal that to you. You don't look down on me because I don't see something the same way you see it on non-essential issues. God will reveal that to you. And in the meantime, all of us walk together in love and unity. That's what he's saying to the church in Philippi. I read this last week, and with this I close. At the base of the Swiss Alps, there is a marker 
that is there to honor a man who fell during a climb. And on the marker is his name and then one brief statement. And this is what it says. He died climbing. Now friends, that ought to be the epitaph of every Christian. He died climbing. Now are you 15 or 25 or 35 or 55 or 85 or 95? No matter how old you are, I ask you this question. If you were to die tomorrow, could it be said of you that you died climbing? Climbing toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Maturing and pursuing maturation and pursuing holiness with all of your effort. What are the marks of Christian maturity? You have a Christ-centered focus or ambition. You have a, a growth in grace that's continually going on. And you live consistently to that level of maturity that you have arrived at. That's what it means to be a mature Christian. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your Word among us, which is able to heal us, to encourage us, to sanctify us. And we do pray, O God, that You would sanctify us by Your truth. We are brought to the foot of the cross in recognition of our need for You, our inability to please You in any way in and of ourselves. And we are dependent upon Your grace and Your goodness to us in every way to honor You through our lives. And we do ask, O God, to call out to You and pray for grace that we may be able to do that, that we may live consistent lives and honor You in every way. And we pray that You would continue to mature every person that is here this morning and every person who has heard this Word, that we might grow in the grace and love and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name and for His glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.